do the trashy pulp novels of the world have anything to offer? Are bestsellers all they're hyped up to be? The Terrible Book Club explores whether or not you really can judge a book by its cover or its ridiculous synopsis. If you've ever seen a book and thought, ugh, who's reading this? We probably are. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Terrible Book Club. I'm Chris and this is Paris. Hello! This time we read Last and First Idol by Gungen Kusano, translated by Andrew Cunningham. Um, This is translated, of course, from the original Japanese, which we did not read in, of course, since we are not skilled in that way. Um, this was a patron request by our patron, Anonymous, just a nameless person dropping this on us once again, which kind of uh, renders it in line with a previous unnamed uh, recommendation that we got that I we mean, will be comparing this I to mean, quite bold, a bit. I <laughs> mean, bold of you to assume Anonymous as even a human person. I suppose they could be At this point, an alien yes, person. I, they could still be. A, you know what? I take that back. I actually would grant personhood to more, more creatures than just humans. So fine, fine. I'll let person stand. Uh, anyway, Anonymous, what have you done to us? What, What is this? What, what, where did you find this? What kind of fandom are you a part of that this would cross your path? Yeah, that's a great question. This- I Well, I yeah, I wondered the same. I, I, this is one of those books where I feel like I am so far away from the audience that this was written for that I'm just grasping at just grasping at anything to try to understand what's li- going on. I'm a little closer considering I have watched a handful of animes before and I live on the internet a little bit more. Yeah, you're still you're at least in the right solar system. I'm like somewhere beyond the bounds of our sun like <laughs> with this yeah. with this one. So why don't you explain to the folks what we do and some content warnings, and then I'm going to do my best to just see if I could summarize. Yeah. All right. So if this is your first time listening to the Terrible Book Club, what we do here is we read books that we assume will be bad based on their cover, title, summary, or some combination of the three. Uh, sometimes we read books that our patrons, listeners, or friends recommend, much like today, where we are reading a patron's choice book. So, in general, we do the opposite of what most people do when they're in a bookstore or while they're browsing the internet, Um, and usually this experiment results in a disappointing and hilarious read, but, you know, once in a while we actually do end up liking the book, and we find that our assumptions were wrong. Content warnings for today. So, in addition to our usual barnyard language, today's episode includes anus cannons, extreme body horror, vor, gore, Organs in places you don't expect organs to be. Multiple apocalypse scenarios of mega weeb proportions kind of layered on top of each other in some kind of hideous Crunchwrap Supreme. 
Um, genetic <laughs> modification. My crunch weeb supreme. Yeah, crunch, yeah. crunch weeb supreme. Uh, genetic modifications, both forcible and consensual. Uh, fun mix there. And I mean, this is really just a veritable toy box of niche Japanese subcultural weirdness. So if you're on board for all that, stick around. If you don't want to hear about yeah. fucking organs stapled to other organs in trailers and game spores becoming, I don't know, mind-bending reality, maybe turn away. Maybe find another episode. We've got a whole 119 other ones in the back catalog, so there's plenty to go around if uh, if this isn't your jam. So, yeah, Chris, uh, uh, yeah. if you could... So, I actually actually kind of think we can skip the characters and settings since you're going to be doing summaries. Maybe... Oh, you want me to read the summaries? Oh, you want me to read them? Okay, I can read the summaries. I, this is the classic thing where I wrote the summary and therefore you read them because it's funnier. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. It is funnier. But I think because all of the setting and characters are A, so weird, and B, in the summaries themselves... I'm actually going to skip over that. Um, the second reason being that this book is actually three short stories. So we have a lot of things to talk about today. Um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to go right to the summaries. Yeah. All right. So the first story in Last and First Idol is Last and First Idol. <sighs> Mika Foritsuki wants to be an idol. So she does a lot of training to be one. It's a lot of pressure, so she jumps off a building. Her friend, Maori Nizono, decides to resurrect her. To do this, she scoops out her brain and preserves it until she is able to figure out resurrection technology. Unfortunately, a solar flare throws the Earth's ecosystem into absolute meltdown. Humanity tries to restore it through the use of genetically engineered jellyfish and spiders, but those just kind of overrun everything and generally make things way worse. Amidst all this, Maori has figured out how to resurrect her friend as a loosely connected pile of organs with the ability to suck the genetic data from its prey and modify its body. Maori kind of did the same thing to herself. You know, the two are overall pretty okay with this, and they feast on the bodies of the last remaining humans. Maori is killed, but Mika lives on, constantly remaking herself into a more and more horrifying mass of flesh with a single goal of finding fans for her idol performances, which of course have now moved to murder. This leads to her building a neural network out of the jellyfish we mentioned earlier, and the spiders. This, as you can imagine, spirals out of control until Mika becomes able to transverse space and alternate dimensions, inspiring consciousness in the universes she visits by entertaining anything that can see her with idle performances and stories? Which is what the story is. So now you're conscious because you read it. Ta-da! Okay, that, that's story one. Yep. <laughs> as surface level as I could possibly have written it Honestly, better. Chris, that was amazing. <laughs> that was a really, really good summary. Okay, so now, okay. so now with that in your mind, let's make a pocket for story two. Story two is called Evo Gals. Evo Gals or Evo Girls, actually? Yeah, make an extra pocket in your body that you got by <laughs> genetically modifying yourself because you sucked out the nuclei of the cells of, of something that you ate or perhaps you won it in a uh, universal scale loot box game. Okay, okay. Let me let me just read the summary. <laughs> All right. Story two is Evo Gals. Yoku Sasajima. I'm so sorry, Japan. I am not good with Japanese names. Is obsessed with the mobile game Evo Gals. 
so much so that she doesn't pay attention to work, her body, or oncoming traffic. After being hit by a truck, Yuko is transported to a version of the afterlife that essentially is just the Evo Gals game. The premise is that you are able to modify your body by spending points at a thing which spits out different body modifications ordered by rarity. Yuko is able to harvest points, aka eat and murder other things, and new bodily functions steadily until she becomes a sort of seafloor dwelling bug creature. This enables her to meet other girls like <laughs> yeah, go da ahead. Dias, go, these names, Dias, Ganapati, and Vayu, who form a squad of horrible creatures that work together to harvest more points, i.e. murder. Yuko is eventually the last one standing of the group, except for Vayu, who she has subsumed into her own body, and is able to gather enough points to go for the ultimate prize, Gravitons. This enables Yuko to undo the whole universe because Graviton's light interact with the 11th dimension, or whatever. Also, mobile games are evolution and also the basis by which things come into being, I guess. Anyway, Yuko the god bug can undo all space and time because of her Gravitons, which she wants to do because she has realized mobile games are bad. Then she wakes up back in the real world and some lady, who is assumed to be Vayu in real life, meets her in a crosswalk and they hug. That one is kind of like... Imagine if Waking Life, the movie, were about video games and Spore, and that's kind of what that one's like. Okay. Mm -hmm. Also, anus cannons. Were, were anus can No, anus cannons are... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was that was story two. That, yeah, that one has does feature a brief anus cannoning. All right. Anuses are also mentioned in the following story. True. All right, story three. Dark Seiyu. Akane Yomokura is a seiyu, a human with a laryngeal sac that allows her to interact with ether, a field that persists through the universe. Using sound generated by the sacs, seiyu can do all kinds of wild shit like fire laser beams, teleport, or drive spaceships. Akane has been murdering other seiyu and stapling their sacs onto herself for more power. One day, she crosses paths with the dark seiyu, a mysterious figure who also murders other seiyu and tells Akane to listen to voices she can faintly hear sometimes. Then Earth's gravity gets turned off and everyone dies. Except, of course, Akane, the Dark Seiyu, and Sachi, Akane's cuddle friend. The Dark Seiyu escapes on their ship while Akane and Sachi escape on one they steal with some other Seiyu. All sorts of violent hijinks occur until Akane and Sachi are the last Seiyu alive on the ship, subsisting on the corpses of the other Seiyu. They attempt to track down the Dark Seiyu to exact revenge for the whole lack of gravity thing and have a run with a pair of bounty hunters, Minerva and Nanase. They escape by flying through Jupiter, out of the solar system, and there they encounter enormous space fish. Starving and desperate since their ship can't handle interstellar travel, they let themselves be eaten by the fish. Inside, they find another Seiyu who has commandeered the whale with her own laryngeal sac. They use the whale to get to the center of the Milky Way, where the dark Seiyu is waiting. The dark Seiyu explains to Akane that the voices she hears are phonons, sound particles that have evolved to gain sentience. The phonons die every time a seiyu uses their voice powers on the ether, and the dark seiyu wanted that to stop, so she murdered other seiyu. She's tired of that life, though, and passes it on to Akane, who gladly takes the mantle of seiyu, savior messiah. Okay. Okay, everyone got all that? You got it all? It's all <laughs> you in your brain that? now? You stapled enough okay. fucking short story sacks to your body? You got it? <laughs> you're more powerful and conscious of the living universe because we've told you about this and you've evolved with us to accept this. Yeah, I... Or something. All right, so how do we want to do this? Do we want to, like, 
talk about each story? Do we want to just talk about the whole thing? I, I'm kind of in favor of just talking about I everything think, at once. Yeah. Th- listen, man, th- because <laughs> everything is so tied together thematically, I don't think it makes too much sense to sort of separate them by story. And it's best that we just approach this by uh, smashing everything together into one horrible mass of <laughs> I mean, that's arms what th- and legs and story parts. That's what the and, fucking uh, author did anyway. Subculture yeah. and like language considerations <laughs> here. Oh, so, uh, okay, pa- pa- Paris. Before <laughs> what I was gonna say before anything, this is perhaps the most insane thing we've read since Eclipse of Darkness, and I don't think that's too out there for me to say. No, I would disagree. I think that, um... Hmm. I would actually say the AI thing is more insane than this, because this actually tries to make sense and does follow kind of a basic story arc. I guess my distinction here is that the AI thing was written specifically by... Or, you know, in conjunction with an AI where it wasn't really supposed to make a whole ton of sense. Yeah, that's fair. Whereas something like Eclipse of Darkness was an attempt to make some kind of sense. Well, but I think... And it did not, and it melted my brain. That's true. But this isn't... I don't think this is quite as brain-melting. Because I think this actually does have some redeeming qualities and succeeds in some ways. Um, Yeah. I actually do agree on that point. I I guess... For me, it's comparable. The reason I, I kept bringing this comparison up to you when we were going through this journey together is because when I was reading Eclipse of Darkness, I feel like my jaw was open the whole time trying to process any last bit of data that I could and trying to sort of get in the author's mindset to understand where did you connect to all this shit? What neurons have melded together to fire in such a way that you came up with this? And I got a very similar vibe from this story. Although it is more coherently put together, there are plot lines that you can follow, unlike the Eclipse of Darkness. Well, and also, this one has a very clear explanation. Japan. <laughs> like, like, knowing this is Japanese just makes me go, yeah, that's fine. Like, I don't know, I just kind of can accept it more readily, because I'm like, well, you know, the culture, or at least the media culture there, seems way more predisposed to wacky as fuck things so to me it just sort of fits in with all of that um all right let, let's talk about do we want to talk about things we liked about it sure i mean i think that's the the generous place to start here and like you said there are some things here which kind of were it's definitely unique right like we're always here talking about like oh we wish we could see something fresh and new and novel in in you know stuff that we read and i think this is that yeah it's i certainly actually novel to us yeah well i was gonna say i actually think un- so unless these are ideas that have already been trod in anime or some other japanese media and we're just unaware of i think that there were several concepts in here that were really fucking cool like i actually think um so let's start with these stories so the first one where we have this girl really trying to be like a pop idol or whatever you know, fam- famous dancing, singing girl and working really hard and then just fucking offing herself in the first, I don't know, 10 pages or 20 pages or so. And then her friend coming like reanimator style, like mad science shit, trying to resurrect her. I thought that was like a good, a good kind of corner for the story to turn. Um, 
Although, I mean, the apocalypse stuff did feel like it came out of nowhere, which I guess that's how apocalypses go for the most part. Um, <laughs> but, you know, well, except for the current one in which well, we're you know, living in. people predicting them all the time, right? You would think one of them would nail it at some point. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I definitely think that it, like... No one's predicting the jellyfish and spiders apocalypse. <laughs> haven't no, heard that No, that's before. a little far off. Um, so, <laughs> I think that I liked how the story kept taking me places I couldn't guess and not in like a not and not always in a way that was like oh what the fuck it was like oh that's wild but all right I could see how you kind of got there like um there were moments where I was like well this kind of needed more explanation like for example in the first story when you know the girl's friend suddenly goes fucking reanimator on her uh, and then there was an intense brain scooping yeah. scene. There was a graphic yeah. <laughs> brain scoop scene and then, in this. But like, you don't expect that at all. And then it's like, oh, and she was, you know, because she was in med school. And I'm like, well, her being in med school doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> like that. This is the natural progression. But okay. every doctor friend you've ever had is totally ready to scoop your brain yeah. out and revive you. Yeah. Although Paris, I got to say, um, I, I, you know, we've been friends a long time. <laughs> yes. Would, would you? Well, I, I'm so. If I died horribly and my brain was still intact, could I count on you to scoop my brain out and reanimate me as a pile of organs? No. Oh, jeez, I thought we were pals, Paris. Well, I mean, unless that's, like, in your will, then I would... Fine. Like if, yes, it's a very specific. It has to be you, actually. Well, no, I mean, like if if this was something I knew you wanted and it was in your will, then of course I would fulfill it. But like of my own volition, if you Wait, jumped off a I balcony, was... I would not. My first reaction would not be. Hold on. Oh. So if I did put this in my will, you would scoop my brain out. I mean, if <laughs> if it's in your will and I knew it was what you wanted, really yeah, put, I'm gonna really put you on this. Well, thank I'm you, respect Paris. Your I actually, that's. I'm actually flattered by that, or I, I, maybe not flattered, or the, a better word for touch, a touched, I suppose, in to, the brain in to, the future. Now to pull up my own will. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know, I don't think I would like to be revived as a loosely connected organ bag. There's like the yeah. lack of skin there really makes it seem like it would not be fun to just have the air around you. Yeah, the whole, like, being just everything is a permeable membrane just sounds really yeah, bad. It doesn't sound nice. <laughs> I think we have the skin there for the purpose that it makes it harder to be permeated. Also, like, now that I'm thinking about it, if there's, like, a, spe if there's a specific checkbox I can check somewhere on, like, my driver's license, like, organ donor or something, but it says do not revive into a pile of organs that sucks the genetic <laughs> data out of other people. Yeah, we it's need a longer that on, acronym, but we need that on our like space passports. Like please do not <laughs> do not reform into unknowable horror. Oh, okay, sorry. He's got the do not reform box checked. Uh, you can throw that into the incinerator. Um just give him to the other horrible mass of flesh. You can just suck the data out, yeah. and, you know. Um and then so uh the second game, I really liked the idea that you know in your afterlife, you end up going through kind of a, a process like similar to what you did in Waking Life. And then I also liked kind of the turn where it was like, just kidding, mobile games created the universe. And I was like, I don't really know how you got there, but it was an interesting turn. Um, <laughs> that was the most Eclipse of Darkness yes, of all of them because of just was. the fact that I kept talking about evolution being some sort of like keyed into divine process thing, except the divinity in this case was loot box mobile games that steal all your money. Yeah, I did. 
like while I kind of appreciated that that plot turn, I really did not appreciate the actual uh, written expression of that plot turn. It was absolutely terrible. <laughs> we'll read it later when we talk about things that were bad. Um, and in the third story, honestly, the third story was my favorite, Dark Sayu. I thought that one really had potential to be like an episode of Japanese Black Mirror. Like all of these could be, you know, but in the right hands. But that last one, I loved the idea of humans with laryngeal sacs because that's those are um those are organs that whales have and i forget a few other creatures and so it's really fun for me to think like well we're both mammals it's possible that humans could eventually evolve something like that and could use it to um communicate or control their environment like i thought that was a really really great sci-fi choice um and then i really liked um, kind of the world building in that story about how the Seiyu, you know, the people with the sacks were really special and powerful, but they were oppressed by the government and there was like a war that had happened and, and, um, you know, they're like, yeah, I just, I just thought that that was all believe, like believable in like a, a wacky sci-fi sense, right? Like I could see this happening in a story. It had some familiar elements, but had good new twists. Like, um, and again, we're just talking about things that were good. We're going to talk a little bit later about things that yeah. we didn't think were good. But um. <laughs> I got I to gotta agree with you here that that was definitely a unique thing. And I think the author here does have a knack for taking a piece of otaku subculture or like weeby subculture, like voice actors, which is what say you are, just voice actors. Chris, could you actually, I think we actually need to define every Japanese term because I didn't even know what was happening half the time when these terms were being used in the text. So I was trying to help you out in the notes since I read. Oh yeah, no, you. you did. But there were some things that I was still lost on. So can you just quickly explain otaku weeb and say you, I know you were in the middle of doing that, but. Otaku is just sort of a super fan of something, like a, almost, like near obsessive super fan of anything. It could be anime, it could be music artist, idols, but it's normally centered around the idea of like anime, manga, gaming, subcultures, that kind of a thing. Okay. Weeb is just an American word. It's just sort of an American gibberish word, short for weeaboo, which is for like the American version of that, the person who is very obsessed with Japanese subcultures. Uh, seiyu is the Japanese word for voice actor, I think. Don't quote me 100% on that one. Oh, and I think we also forgot to d define idol, but I mean, they're basically just like superstars, kind of, right? Not not necessarily. They're just um, entertainers that you can idolize in a way. They're not necessarily super famous. So I have a friend in Japan that is very much part of this uh, sort of scene, and she'll go around and attend specific music performances um, of these groups. And usually, like, I mean, these people might have a fan base numbered in, like, you know, small thousands or maybe a few hundred or something like that. And it's kind of, like, up to the fans really to, like, push their preferred group into the broader circles of things. I was brought to one a show of this, uh, of one idol group, uh, Hapipi when I was um, in Tokyo and my, this friend of mine took me to one of those idol shows. And like, it was like 30, 40 people in attendance, similar to like a small local metal show over here. But boy, were those people way more into it than anyone I've ever seen at a metal show. I gotta say, the energy was high and constant and almost never ending. I've never seen a metal show with this much participation from the audience, ever. 
Chris, they're different subcultures. Let's not let's not shame sure. our metal brethren. We enjoy things with our sure. arms crossed and an, a light yeah. nod of the head. That's, <laughs> it's just that's fine. Yeah, it's a different style, style, I gotta say. But I mean, I could tell that the the music, the singers were able to feed off of it a little bit. Easier. But in, but in general, I, I just like that part. Yeah. No. Anyway, back back to my original point here is I think uh, Kusano here has a really good ability to take like one of those kernels of those ideas and spin out an absurd sci-fi story based on that and build a world by like sort of like taking like okay if this was the, the kernel of an idea like oh humans have laryngeal sacs and they can use that to have superpowers essentially what is the logical following consequence of all that and he does that in a very creative and interesting way i have to say yeah and like uh, a related point of something that i really liked was all of the scientific thought that he put into this. I mean, I'm no quantum physicist. I don't really know anything about atmospheric chemistry or whatever, but he incorporates, um, I guess I'm assuming this is a man. I actually don't know, but um, I don't really, I don't always quite understand the gender um, assignments of Japanese names. So apologies if this is female or non-binary person. I don't know. But um, the author, uh, they do a great job of yeah, incorporating actual science in the sci-fi, which is something I'm sure, you know, listeners, you know, I have bitched about endlessly that authors don't do. They don't think about the science. They don't even try to add anything. Um, that is something that I appreciated that the author took the time to be like, hey, you know, when they like did this, this was like how it worked with the atmosphere and like the planets and gravity and you know, whatever. Anyway, it, again, we'll talk about the parts of it I didn't like, but I thought the attempt to incorporate real science and expand upon it in like a really true sci-fi way was a good part of these stories. I would agree. Although we'll get to it later how they're kind of just crammed in there all yeah, of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, Let's see. Another thing I wanted to talk about. Um, Oh, actually, Chris, I guess you can take this point because I... I don't understand anything. I don't really know much about Japanese stuff. And Chris, I remember when we were first looking into this after that patron requested it. And we, you know, it was noted as being a Yuri set of stories. Um, could you could you please explain to our dear listeners what Yuri is? Okay, so I actually had an idea of what that might mean in my head. But then I had this clarified to me by that same friend that I mentioned before. Um, and so... I originally understood Yuri to mean any sort of lady on lady romantic love kind of a thing because Chris, uh, Chris, to be frank le- with lesbian you, porn is what is what we're getting at. Yes, here, right. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's I'm trying to dance around <laughs> that, but that's how I understood it is yeah. just Japanese lesbian hentai porn or or something like that. But apparently, the true connotation is more along the lines of. Two gal pals that really like each other a lot in a very platonic way where, in fact, there will be no sort of sexual or romantic interaction. It's sort of a courtly love thing, perhaps. Maybe that's not the greatest analogy, but like, hey, I really like you and we're bonded forever, but not in that way. Just in a very close and intimate but friendly way. So it's kind of like sisterhood, but the two people aren't related. Yes, but everyone, it's a, it's a but pure it's love, yeah, pure. But of course, in the back of everyone's minds, they're like, "Fuck, come on!" Yeah. You yeah, know, I, yeah, and I, I think so. I understand. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a, like titillation kind of a thing. I feel like, 
Um, but maybe I'm just maybe I'm just thinking about it in too dark of a way. Every story centers around two women who are close in this way. So they have this sort of sisterly, eternal love bond. It's not sexual or anything. Although the last story, there's like some cuddling and hand-holding, but it's nothing nothing sexual. And I remember when Chris, when Chris first broached this to me, like, hey, this is gonna be this is this is maybe gonna be some like weird, weird sex stuff. I was like, oh, fuck. But pleasantly surprised to find no weird sex stuff. Honestly, the relationships between the relationships between the two girls are I mean, they're very surface level, so you don't ever have to worry about like an extended there's no like sex scenes, there's no weird cre- I was really I, okay, so the thing I was most worried God about God and Satan and every possible being out there that I did not have to read a sex scene between a pile of organs <laughs> and a truck with a pile of organs inside it. Honestly, part of me was like damn if they could have written that a convincing way, that would have been a true achievement. <laughs> but, um, Wait a minute, Paris. You're saying the sex scene that you wanted to read was the sex scene between a pile of organs and a truck with a pile of organs in it. I mean, it would be more interesting than 99% <laughs> of the sex scenes we have had to read for this fucking that show. That's actually 100% true. It would be new ground to tread <laughs> with your trailer of organs. You know, there was a brief sex scene where uh, one whale ship uh fucked another whale ship with the main characters that's true (laughs) that's true there were space fish that fucked and i I that was actually kind of sort of graphic excuse me excuse me chris space fish ships say that 10 times fast space fish ships space space fish ships space fish space fish ships (laughs) so hard Um, space fish ships but anyway Point being, even though there's a lot of gore and, you know, talks about anus and, you know, a couple whales have sex in space, <laughs> it's really not focused on that. There's no... It's totally platonic. Well, it, well, there's no weird male gaziness about it, which is something I really appreciated because it's something I complain about in almost every book we read where even female authors um, will kind of buy into this kind of you know, creepy fetishization and weird misogynistic um, way that that kind of Western men tend to look at women. So it was nice that it was just like not any of that. might push back on that just a touch. Okay, okay. Because it's like the basis of the stories is this idea of like cute anime girl. Like that is the the basis on which this is put on. And that imagery is sort of its own male gaze as well. Yeah, but it's but it's like so first of all, it's a drop in the bucket in these stories. It's mentioned at the beginning and then it's just quickly forgotten. True, and then they very much not cute anime girls anymore. Very Which swiftly. is which is honestly I think the last thing we can talk about about what we appreciated about these stories is that there is some tongue in cheekness here and we weren't quite sure how far it extended if the entire project of this book was tongue in cheekery. Um, or if it's just a little haha here and there, because, you know, in the first story, these, these beautiful, you know, quote unquote, stereotypically beautiful idol girls get turned into fucking masses of meat organs and don't even have flesh anymore. Um, and in the second one, you know, cute Japanese girl and other cute Japanese girl friends get turned into horrifying, like, spore creatures. And in the last one, you have cute girls but they have these gross sacks under their necks and like one of them has like 12 sacks just like grafted onto her body everywhere and you know so I 
I think it does do a little bit of subversion here. Um, and I, and again, I'm never really sure. It was really, I think, be, so because it is a translated work, I feel it is very difficult to tell where, how far the tongue goes into the cheek here, right? Like, like, um, <laughs> it seems firmly embedded to me, to be okay, honest with okay. you, with the lines in Last and First Idol, where she was like, there's one point where she's like trying to consider how to modify her horrible body even more to like transverse space better. And it's phrased like, it's time for a makeover. And I actually <laughs> laughed out loud at that. That was fucking hilarious. Yeah, there there were, I think actually in that first story, that was the one that had the most humor in it, and the other two, le- much less so. Um, Dark Seiyu had it a little bit, but it was very like sort of deadpan, like, oh yeah, now I'm the god messiah of all Seiyu. Okay, let's go have lunch, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't quite as... Uh, I, yeah, I do feel like the first one had some things that made me go, huh. You know, in my mind, as we've talked about before. So, I think, overall, there were some concepts in this that, in the right hands, could really be a pretty interesting, either fleshed out, store, longer story book, or, like I said, Japanese <laughs> episode of... fleshed out in this context. <laughs> uh, or, or, like I said, you know, Japanese Black Mirror episode in five years or something. Um, uh, so, but, uh, you know... There were a lot of things we didn't... Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, one more thing. I only found three typos in the entire book. So thank you to whoever edited this. Thank you to the author for at least making sure that your concepts were readable, you know, understandable to the human mind. Um, In some way. Yeah, didn't have any weird grammatical issues, used commas and quotation marks for speech, like... All the the technical stuff was totally fine, and considering that is one of my major complaints with every book we read, really glad to not have to tangle with that. In addition to like atmospheric <laughs> physics and quantum physics, so you know, really, really glad I had to just step over that bar just a little bit. Just okay, a step. Paris. Before we move into um, stuff we weren't so much of a fan of, mm-hmm. if you had to pick living in one of these three worlds or perhaps being one of these three protagonists which one would you go with would you be horrible mass of organs that's able to evolve itself and transverse space and time would you be a bug creature that has also evolved itself by murdering other things in order to graft new body parts onto yourself or would you be some kind of mystical superpowered voice person with a sack under your neck well, my initial instinct is that I would want to be in the Dark Seiyuu universe because at least I still have a humanoid form and mind, and I'm just really powerful, probably. And I would also use my voice as my power, which is kind of natural for someone who's a singer. Um, the other two seem less appealing because in the first story, I mean, being a sentient pile of organs in a post-apocalyptic spider jellyfish hellscape, just... <sighs> I don't Hard know. Sell. I I just would really, sell. you know, the the flesh and the power it holds, uh, as as Chuck as Chuck <laughs> once once told us. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't love that. The second story, I guess, I could swing if it was indeed like it was all just a dream, or like it was a afterlife, but you lived or whatever. Um, because then there's like still some possibility of. 
waking up from it. But anyway, that was my long answer. I would be a say you. Give me that laryngeal sack. Give it to me. <laughs> I think I'd be dead in all three universes. So I, you know, honestly, it's just like, how do I want to die? Um, Wait, and, why would you uh, be dead in all three universes? Well, in the first one, I'd probably just get eaten by the main character. Or, you know, no, unless I was the one that was revived, in which case I don't want to be a pile of organs. Okay, yeah, fair. Um, the second one, I mean, I guess there wasn't like an apocalypse scenario in the second one, right? It was just like some lady got hit by a truck. So I guess I'd be fine in that universe and be otherwise normal. So that might be the pick for me where I just am undisturbed and don't have to deal with, I don't know, getting uh, DNA booster packs from the DNA booster pack vending machine. Oh my god, Chris, but you could... Actually, that might be the universe for for you because you could actually evolve the most powerful eyes. <laughs> oh yeah, for once and for all. <laughs> and, what is the Veronica? Well, fight? and hearing, no, just right? Normal, I, just give me normal uh, eyes, actually. <laughs> no, you could become like some kind of all-seeing, I don't know... Guitar critter or some some such. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just like a bunch of strings <laughs> strung across one big eye. Yes, <laughs> yes, correct. Just, just like biological gut strings that can sh- fucking shred though. Yeah, and then like and I you, and yeah, and that's how you. Universe, oh I my god, yeah, you're like you're like a mantis shrimp. When you play your fucking strings, it creates sound waves so powerful that they're like a bullet and they kill your prey and you eat them. I mean, sure. I'll, I'll take... You know what? Yeah, you've sold me. Universe 2. <laughs> I think in Dark Seiyu, I would have just been killed in the gravity undoing. Yeah, that's fair. I'm definitely not a voice actor of any kind. My voice is not my strong suit. I would be a powerless Seiyu, even if I was one. All right. Well, well, listeners, which world would you like to be in? <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> Tell us. Um... All right, so now we're going to move... Where would you like your sack, everybody? Where would you like your sack? Um, all right, folks, we're going to move into things that were not good about this uh, this series of three stories within this one book. So here we are. So um, I don't know, Chris, I guess I'll start if that's okay. Sure. So There's no good place to exactly begin here. You just got to go with all it. All right, so let's start at the prologue, the very beginning of the book. It's like the prologue itself is weirdly threatening and possessive i feel like a stalker wrote this book for me and i will actually just read it for you uh because it is it really sets the tone well though i gotta say it does what a prologue should do um (laughs) it really prepares you all right i suppose yeah this novel tells the story of a girl who becomes the greatest idol of all the protagonist mika furutsuki is an entirely fictional character, and yet, every word written here is true. The idol whose origin was Mika Furutsuki will have a dramatic effect on the universe and your very existence. You must read this novel with utmost care and attention. You must cheer for Mika Furutsuki. You must empathize with her, and you must identify with her. When you have finished reading this novel, assuming you understood it, you will have found yourself accepting a new calling. These words, this book, are written for no one else. Only you. <laughs> like, why does it op- why 
does it start that way? I anyway. Sort of a donatology vibes there. Yeah, a little bit of a donatology. Definitely Eclipse of Darkness vibes right off the bat. Yes. Like I read that and Just I was like, like by reading this, you will have expanded your consciousness into the absolute galaxy brain universe brain in fact yeah this is just the re-eclipse of darkness like it really felt like that so so that already like i said sets the tone it's kind of fucking weird something i really didn't like about this book was that there was no character development i didn't give a fuck about any of these characters and whether they lived or died or transformed again or fucking rocketed into a whale anus like i so <laughs> the worst thing is the thing that happens the, and the worst part is like i don't even hate them I'm just, I just don't care. And indifference is worse. I, I just, I can't relate to them. They all seem flat and silly and just sort of little. Sociopathically murderous. Yeah, they're all, they're all, well, yeah, they all have this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, n- like remorseless serial killer mindset. And, and they're gleeful about it. They're just gleeful about murder. There's no remorse. There's no feeling bad. It's just, oh, I just murdered to advance myself. And it's just very a very weird um, persona for literally all of your main characters to have. <laughs> like, all three yeah. stories, they could just all be the same person. Yes, there's no difference between them whatsoever. Between, except name. Like, Mika, Akane, and I forget the middle one. I forget her Yuko. name. Yuko. Like, Yuko. they all may as well be the same person in different scenarios. There's no difference. There's no development. It's really flat and bland. There's body development. Well, at the Certainly expense the, of the, the mind, clearly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just no... I don't know how you identify with a character like that unless you're also a sociopath gleeful for murder, which I doubt is most of the audience, the intended audience for this book. So, weird. Um... I think that's supposed to be part of the funny part of it, where it's like, oh, it's a cute lady, but she's just a horrible murderer and doesn't mind brutally ending the life of anything around her for yeah, her own game. Yeah, but I mean, that's a fucking trope. Like, Which is an anime like, trope. That's the thing in anime for sure. Well, so that's it's not an anime ground. trope. It's also just like Harley Quinn, you know, like uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of an everywhere trope. <laughs> Oh, yeah. things are not what they seem. Oh, the cute anime girls are murderer. Like, okay, dude, we get it. It's fucking whatever. So I could really have mm-hmm. used just a, a differing of protagonist motivations and personalities in each story. That would have been nice, but alas. Next, the writing overall is flat. And, and what this felt like was, you know, it's the apocalypse and I'm sitting around a trash fire to keep warm. And there is... A f- old friend of mine uh, keeping us entertained with stories and and this old friend is retelling some story they half remembered from ye old YouTube one time and and then like <laughs> interjecting humor into it because it's so fucking grim that is how all these stories felt like someone retelling a campfire tale uh, it's just there's no there's no dynamics it's just like well, and it's then very matter of fact. Yes, very matter of fact. Like, well, she thought this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and oh no, this blew up. Like, and and part of me wondered if it wasn't the translation because, of course, we're not reading this as written in its native tongue. So, you know, I have to allow some deference there because Japanese and English are very, very, very different languages in the way that they are constructed, like with the syntax and, and grammar and everything. So. It's it's a it's likely that things could actually have been 
literally lost in translation here and perhaps the translator just felt it was easier to like format the stories this way but i don't know i don't know anything about andrew cunningham uh i believe that was the translator's I, name was my friend once again bringing her back into this because she was kind of my point of contact to get me like some kind of orientation in this and i kind of went to her a couple of times and i asked like for some guidance in how things you know might have sounded in the original japanese and she really only read like the preview on amazon and immediately she <laughs> let me know i think the translator is a piece of garbage here clearly <laughs> but Wait, she, but the preview isn't. It, but the preview isn't necessarily translated by the person who translated the book. The preview is just what's on, like. No, you know, the, uh, yeah, it, but if you go to Amazon, you can read like the first twenty pages of. The, oh, of I, the book. I'm sorry. I thought you meant she read the like blurb on the. No, the no, oh, no, sorry, no, like the, the like the Amazon look inside. The look thing. inside. And then she okay. Went and, okay. And then she went and read the Japanese version of it for comparison. So, like, one example she gave me was, like, within the first couple pages of the first story, the translator uses the term filthy casual, which is, you know, net slang, kind of, <laughs> yeah. for someone who isn't, you know, just a normie, doesn't play a lot of games or something, and, you know, doesn't do well because they have better shit to do with their life. Um, and she told me, like, the f she didn't give me the exact phrase used in the Japanese version, but it was also kind of net slang, but not quite so trashy almost i believe it was the way she put it yeah um so there was a, immediately a difference in translation there and this kind of led us down into this rabbit hole of like discussing the differences between japanese and english if you don't mind an aside here um she gave me this like sort of example of a japanese word that is kind of relevant to the stories here uh the word ameru which is a japanese concept of like instilling the need for someone else to care for you like you're trying to get someone else to look upon you as requiring care me sort of like you want them to baby you a little bit but that's not quite an exact translation according to her because that in our language that has the connotation of being spoiled or perhaps childish in a bad way but in japanese that's considered kind of like totally a normal thing to want and positive in fact it's like trying to instill the feeling of kawaii or cuteness in someone else so that they treat you somewhat kindly or favorably and these differences of connotations are where like the yeah. fun of language and writing and poetry live oh sure and they're also where they can fail with a poor translation so yes and i exactly and you know i'm i don't speak a lick of japanese and i i, I know you know some words and phrases and stuff and you've been to japan but i that again this is like one of those points where i just felt really out of my depth because there were all these words being used here and there and chris provided some definitions but then there were other ones and i was like i don't fucking this is and i'm glad i got to define sundere to you Paris. yeah i mean it it well could you could you define it for uh for listeners sundere is like someone who pretends to not like you at all in fact might be like sort of shitty and violent towards you but in fact is like deeply in love with you in secret i mean that's a western trope too that's how women are yeah. trained to think of all men so <laughs> oh wow yes. that's dark anyway um yes, tsundere dudes is the western way yeah it is um but in, in any case uh yeah i i feel like something i didn't love about this book was that it was for a really really narrow particular audience and 
is kind of unapproachable if you're, you know, if you don't know what these things are and you don't know anything about any, I don't know. And it's not like I'm, it's not like I want certain genres to be gatekept. Um, Actually, sorry. Yeah. What I'm saying is the opposite of that. I don't want things to be kind of gatekept by terminology. And it, it would be one thing if, if the terms were explained through context, but they're not, they're just said, and you're supposed to know what they are. And that's yeah, it. so that's actually a fantastic example where the word sundere pops up in English, you know, romanized in the text here, and you, someone who has no connection to any sort of like, you know, anime subculture or manga reading, has no reference for that when you could have translated that word into English using some kind of phrase or concept. I know it's kind of hard to like, because that's another thing about language is that Japan has packed this concept into one word. Whereas in English, I had to have a whole sentence to explain that. But that's the duty of the translator, is to find the way to do that. Well, and the author, too, to say, like, I mean, they could have said, you know, so, well, I guess the author, I, I mean, I think that the author intended for this to be translated into English when they wrote it. It seems that way to me. Because it, I think it came out in English and Japanese in the same year, I think. I think. From what I read. But, you know, you would think if if they were like, oh, this person's a sundere, they could have said, like, you know, he was always kicking me, but I knew, I knew he really liked me because he winked at me when he did it or something, you know. Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, Mary's boyfriend was like that, too. Another sundere. Like, the, you know, there's, a, I just pulled that all out of my ass, but there are ways uh, <laughs> to use context. correction there. Sundere is more something you are. Like, it's not a noun. It's more oh, of an adjective. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Someone is tsundere than is a tsundere. Sorry. Sorry. Apologies. Um, I thought you might be interested to know. <laughs> Chris, I think you just enjoy correcting my language because I don't know Japanese. <laughs> well, I don't know that much either, but like, I don't know. It's I Chris's like time to lord over Paris. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Here's another really fucking Japanese thing I hated about this book. Well, actually, I don't... You know what? I'm going to take that back. It's not solely a Japanese problem. It's a problem with a lot of kind of tropey, kind of stereotypical anime. It's also a problem with a lot of Western action films where we have, like, good guy, bad guy banter. You know, they're in the middle of a fight and they're like, my master plan is this! laser beam like haha I, you are a bitch haha like chops leg off you know and it's just I mean for me that shit really I takes... loved that episode of Dragon Ball Z yeah exactly Rico called him a bitch exactly well there, there's actually there's actually a bunch of bitch and asshole in the last story um there's a little bit in the oh here here's like a great example in the in the final story in Dark Sayu um there's a there's this moment where the main character and her, I guess, what do you call a Yuri girlfriend? That's not really a girlfriend. Their partner? Partner? Yeah. Yeah. Their Yuri partner. They're escaping from Earth because Earth like totally fucking collapsed. And they, through various ways, make it away. And then this um, bounty hunter ship finds them. And, you know, and of course, which like begs the question, like, what are you bounty hunting if like the earth is fucking gone who's gonna pay the bounty but i guess i guess in this situation there were people living in other parts of the solar system anyhow bounty hunter pulls up and is like hey you're a criminal you're under arrest and then 
you know, Akane, the main character, goes, hardly the time for that. Earth already collapsed. And then the bounty hunter says, whether the Earth burns or the sun explodes, I see my jobs through. And Akane says, well, ain't you a loyal dog? Sachi, stick a say you nuke in this bitch. <laughs> and, like, they just have this back and forth. Yes. And, like, it's really silly. I Oh, oh here's another great quote. Um, so they're fighting. And just during the space fight, they are talking shit to each other over comms. I don't really know how you could pay attention to all that. But then... There's a line that says, be ready. I'm about to board your ass and kill you with my own two hands. And the phrase, I'm about to board your ass, just really got me. I don't know. I thought that was... Like, I guess it's funnier in that context, too, because, like, the way they move the ships around and fire beams is using their voice. So you have to stop doing that to talk shit at the other ships. Yeah, right. right. I don't. Whatever you're doing, they're just going like, you bitch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to board your ass. Uh, or whatever sounds they're making. Yeah, too. I. that's a great point. So I found that that really kind of took me out of the element of an otherwise kind of interesting idea. Um, you know, along with kind of how rigid the writing was, that those two things kind of really sucked for me. Um, it's very fan fiction voiced. Like I've read fanfics before, and it's written like a very amateur level fit. And in terms of like the pacing and the matter of factness about how things are stated, it's written like a very sort of low level fan fiction. Although I can't say I've written, I've read any high-level fan fiction either, so well, I don't have a point of comparison. I mean, I know fa fan fiction gets a bad rap, and, like, I'm one of those people who's very wary of it, and I also think a lot of it sucks, but I have a friend who writes fan fiction, and I've read a couple of their stories, and they were fine. They were not written in this kind of, like, rigid style, so I don't know if maybe this is just a more common style among people who are perhaps just starting out uh that would make sense to me and since a lot of fan fiction writers you know are kind of just getting into writing uh that makes sense but I, I think people who have written for a while uh kind of shed that i don't think that that's i wouldn't say it's characteristic of all fan fiction uh, at least from my experience not that i've read a sure, ton of I, it, I mean yeah, at least from what I've read. So I'm not going to like come down too hard on that whole style or genre or class of, I don't know, whatever you want to call that there. Yeah. It's not all bad, but just like the way this read to me, it tipped me off that this was perhaps started as a fan fiction. And it was, the first story was a fan fiction of Love Live, which is an anime series slash media empire about guess what idols. Oh, is that, is that a real thing? I didn't, I didn't know that. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's a real thing. Uh, oh, and, and last last on my list is way too many goddamn coincidences and close calls and, you know, how characters are getting out of things. It's just, you know, I mean, we have characters literally dying, but then they have an afterlife or they get resurrected or, you know, they're about to die, but then all these miraculous stuff happens and everything aligns perfectly. And, you know, we if you've listened to the show before, you know Chris and I can't stand that shit. It is just overdone, especially in short stories. I mean, these things are... Um, I think the longest one was like 70 pages. They were all pretty mm -hmm. pretty contained. So it's even worse when you have fewer than 100 pages, but you're cramming in like five coincidences. It's just, ugh, come on. No, mm -mm. you got to you got to write, you got to write your way around that stuff. You can't you can't just 
rely on yeah, everything's always just squeezing out at the in the nick of time yep. or you know the, you have just the right formula or just the right uh, body composition to do things right speaking of body composition this was a problem <laughs> that i had which might just be my own inability to keep certain physical descriptions straight you it seems like you had a fine time here but like with how often body parts were shifting and changing i found it hard to hold a mental image of each protagonist, except maybe Dark Sayu, that was fine. It was just like, oh, she's got some more sacks on her body. But like, especially with Last and First Idol, where you know there was like every she called called herself, oh, I'm the second generation idol because now I'm all like a mass of arms and legs with like assault rifles and shurikens <laughs> attached to me that get you know that I use to murder other things and suck their genetic data out to give me more pieces of things to work with i just find it very hard found it very hard to keep track of you know what body parts were where and next to what and in what stage of the process is this piece still here so i kind of gave up pretty quickly trying to hold that mental image in my head i mean i i actually yeah it's, it's interesting that we had such different experiences with this because i actually thought this was one of the strengths because in so many um in so many works we've read where it's like trying where it just says i don't know something was this they give no description and we're just like what the fuck where's the description where's the rich you know um adjectives and stuff to really or even like spatial and temporal words to show us where this is and how big it is and what it looks like i feel like this author really tried to describe these oh they certainly tried um okay okay so let me read in the first book um, let me just read a, a passage. So, okay, this is just a a passage about um Mika from the first story. Um, how she's changing into the the second generation of her her like metamorphosis here. Her core methods of movement involved floating with her stomach and expelling air with her lungs. These faint methods of propulsion gave her a top speed of, at best, three kilometers per hour. Corrosive gas would swell up her stomach, allowing it to rise higher in the air. This functionality was quite well done, and in theory, would allow her to go as high as the stratosphere. Food was digested in vitro. Digestive fluids were excreted directly from the intestines, and the food was absorbed after it was dissolved. The swarms of jellyfish drifting across the sky had given the second generation idol this means of living. She was quite weak, but she did have ways of defending herself. Her nerve jack cables. They were a pair of cords, sharpened like a jellyfish's poison stingers. These were the spinal nerves from the original Mika Furutsuki. If she stabbed the brain of another living thing with these jacks, she could take over their mind, controlling them as she pleased. Even better, she could alter their immune system, allowing any and all of their body parts to function as if they were her own. Um, And, I mean, there were, I don't know, there were other parts that kind of, uh, earlier parts that described kind of what her body looked like and Maori's. Um I don't know. I th- I thought it was I thought he did actually a really good job with that part. Um so. I guess for me it's like the frequency with mm. which she was changing. It kind of made it hard for me to land perfectly on like okay, exactly what part what percentage of you is a jellyfish thing versus like <laughs> a bag of organs versus, you know, a, a stomach sack that you each individual description can be fine, but I, it was hard to say what the transitory stages were and therefore what remained of the 
first one. Mm. Like, if you had just given me a body description over time, I could have just, like, sort of mentally created a picture. But then when everything is in flux so much... At one point, it literally describes her as a rolling ball of arms and legs with assault rifles attached, which sounds to me like the worst Katamari I've ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. But, like, how much of that was retained from the stomach gas expelling thing? Like, was were, where were the nerve jacks in that ball of fucking horror? Right? 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 Like, Well, I think, um, so I have, I have an unrelated thought. So the, the swirling mass of, um, the, the, like, rolling ball with, with the, with the guns. How many, so what do you think, what kind of rights would that being have in Texas right now? <laughs> that's, like, <laughs> that's my question. Uh, I wonder, I wonder. Have all it has the rights. a heartbeat, therefore. A heartbeat and like a hundred guns. It would have the most Wait, rights. Actually, dep- Paris, it would actually it usurp totally the governor of Texas. Paris, get it, out it of there. Hundred percent depends. Here's the here's the defining factor of how much rights it gets. <laughs> Can it get pregnant? Uh I mean, not naturally, but I'm sure if if they wanted to, they could figure out a way for that to happen. They seem to be able to create all sorts of. They seem to have an uh, infinitely intelligent mind, so I'm sure that they could if they wanted to. I suppose at that point, therefore, it has slightly less rights than some other beings because I could put it in prison and put a bounty on its head. But then if it's covered in hundreds of guns... I feel like I feel like the number <laughs> yeah, of guns yeah. outweighs... Actually, this is an extremely Texas being, if you think about it. <laughs> God. This is perhaps the most Texas being out there. <gasps> See, if she had fused with her her female friend with the truck body and had just been like guns and a truck oh my God. at the same time, it would have been, been elected. The perfect w- Texas being. Oh my God! It would have been the Republican nominee for twenty twenty four. <laughs> 2024 vote truck gun like i I can just see that happening in the post-apocalyptic wasteland of next year um (laughs) we've got it we found it we found the candidate to to succeed donald trump (laughs) i really want it's just an uh, angry murderous ball of guns and a truck body i really want a t-shirt that says truck gun 2024 (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay. Um anyway, to my related thought, back to the topic at hand is that I actually think the author does a great job of balancing like giving us a little bit of a morsel of what it's supposed to look like and then forcing us to imagine the rest because in some ways that's actually more horrific. Um you know, like if you think of sure. all the the unknowable eldritch horrors that um um is it Smith that I'm thinking of? Smith and Lovecraft, or is it William Hope Hodgson? <laughs> uh no, um, no. <laughs> oh God! His horrible eldritch descriptions of a shadow on the sea. The her- horrible vibrating boats. The horrible eldritch description of a book that was not real. <laughs> <laughs> a piece of meat rising. From a well. Uh, all right. Well, Paris, I, I, related to this, I had, a, like, we mentioned sort of the, the science-y stuff that pops up in here. And oh, like, yeah. And, while that, you mentioned, is well done in and of itself, it's really just kind of crammed in randomly. Like, you'll be reading about, you know, some 
a demon girl wrecking havoc across things. Then it takes a fucking sidebar into metaphysics for like yeah, two pages about, yeah. hey, listen, you got to understand that um, the vibrations of space results in yada, yada, yada. That, you know, yeah, I will say ca- as, as much as I enjoyed that the author really tried to use some some hard science or and expand upon hard science into the future and, and make this more real. Yeah, it was really just jammed in there. Uh, I, I'm just going to try to find a spot that I can read so y'all can understand what we're talking about here. Within the standard paradigms of modern physics, monopoles had only appeared during the initial inflation of the universe. Even if they were to occur now, the universe was expanding, which meant they'd be far and few between. But here, they were actually observing them. It seemed appropriate to assume the solar flare was caused by a vast number of monopoles around the sun. In time, the term monopole superflare started to stick. The possibility that a monopole superflare could strike the Earth directly became critical to their survival of the human race. With the ozone layer destroyed, a second direct attack would wipe out not just mankind, but all life on Earth. Countermeasures had to be developed immediately. The ensuing debate was a furious one. Everything from massive plans like blowing up the Yellowstone supervolcano and protecting the Earth with the resulting aerosol, to smaller plans like distributing free hats, to tricky plans like manipulating the genome to make mankind aquatic, over 671 proposals in all. The plan that was finally put into action was a fusion of genetics and astrophysics. The core of the plan was to use genetics to create symbiotic bacteria that would offer resistance to radiation and UV rays, while using both of those as an energy source. The genes for radiation assistance had been discovered in bacteria at the site of the Chernobyl accident. They had the ability to make multiple copies of themselves and compensate for the radiation damage by taking the common denominator from those multiplied cells. These could also convert radiation itself into energy and use that energy to live. Ultraviolet ray defenses were found in sea squirts and mantis shrimp living near the equator. UV rays were particularly strong at the equator, so they developed cells that could absorb them. The short wavelength of UV rays had not previously been an effective energy source, but they fixed that by altering the chloroplast genes of plants. By combining these three sets of DNA, they created a new organism, or Novum Organum. The Novum Organum were symbiotic bacteria and, like mitochondria and chloroplasts, were able to function as organelles within the cells of higher life forms. In time, the meaning of the term expanded, and Novum Organum was used to refer to the higher life forms that survived symbiotically with the Novum Organum. Their plan was as follows. They were going to make nests of Novum Organum on a number of asteroids placed in orbit around the Earth. The primary creatures used for this would be spiders that produced thread, reinforced with carbon nanotubes, and jellyfish that bloomed from the ground like plants. The jellyfish would grow outwards like tree rings, the inside slowly hardening. The spiders would live inside the jellyfish, which would protect them from the rigors of the vacuum. The spider's threads, reinforced with carbon nanotube, would descend to the Earth's surface. Like in Ryunosuke Akutagawa's The Spider's Thread, the asteroids would be tied to the Earth. And it just goes on and on, like, describing (laughs) the spider jellyfish thing, which part of me is like, okay, yes, you do need to describe that. But the other part of me is like, could you have done it in a way that wasn't so... Again, I'm going to use this word, rigid and boring? I don't know. Um, And there are worse parts where it goes into, like, astrophysics, and you're like, oh, no. And I really just started, like, drifting during those parts where it just starts talking about, like... Well, in space, this does this, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this planet is here, and you're just like, oh, fuck me. Like, this is so boring. And, and Chris, my, so my question to you is, like, compare 
these versions of scientific explanations with those in the expanse and can you can you think back to the scientific explanations in the expanse and how they're different and like what makes them better because you've actually read the expanse books whereas i've only watched the show so far yeah the last book's coming out in october i'm so excited anyway um the expanse does it so this book kind of just drops these explanations in on you and they're sort of aside from the narrative that's happening at hand like it's not like it's um mika or maori describing this to someone or you know to herself or like even like she's studying this in her spare time it's just matter-of-factly explained to you by the narrator in the expanse like one of the first major things you learn is like how they get up to sort of um intersolar uh, you know, being able to travel between planets within a reasonable time frame. And it's the story of like this one specific engineer that accidentally figured out the particular combination of like engine gases to feed in a certain way and how he like almost fucking was unable to get himself back because like he shot off into space and he couldn't grab the control or something to like turn himself back around because it was so fucking fast. So there's like a little bit of this like, you know, a story within a story element of it of like, um, a little drama to the descriptions that help you also understand the world that is happening or the world that this takes place in. Um, so that's the major difference, I would say. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, the other the other thing that I think about when I think, well, you know, if I think back to other stuff I've read where it has scientific explanations, you know, how how is it better? And, and it's better kind of like you said, when you have a character explaining it to another character. Um, and, and also I would add to that, it's better when it's kind of broken up over time. So yes, you're not you're not sitting through a fucking lecture on Chernobyl jellyfish spider nanotube threads. <laughs> and you're, you know, someone just says something like, oh, The Democrat well. nominee for president, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um... I'm not as bad as the angry ball of guns. Jellyfish Spiders 2024. <laughs> Jellyfish Spiders 2024. Oh, we'll secure the Earth to the cosmos. That's their, that's their tagline. <laughs> Can someone make these fucking shirts or stickers for us? Like, we really... I need these. Um, I need these in my life. But, yeah, like something that comes to mind is, is A, having a character... Like, interaction between characters to describe this. Giving it out piecemeal. And then C, there's also the option of of the character kind of realizing or passively absorbing this by, I don't know, reading a plaque or coming across a journal or like just anything that isn't just the author being like, and now we are going to talk about astrophysics. And it's like, okay, dude, like, I'm really glad that you did describe this because so many authors don't even take that step. But you really, it needs to be woven into the story, not fucking stapled on like so many laryngeal sacks. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that, I, I think that's my final complaint. Each of them screaming an exposition at you separately. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and well, I guess this is related I just said this was my final complaint. This is a related complaint, but um, yeah, at the end, each story at the end is like, this is the explanation for the story. And you're like, okay, could you have maybe woven it into the story and like not just directly told me like, haha, she is not actually dead or like, haha, you know, mobile games are really evolution yeah. in, in existence itself and that they are the reason that 
evolution in the universe exists at all because mobile games the gambling randomness part of it is like evolution you see ah you see that connection there it's like you're gambling like genetic mutations are the gotcha uh, uh, game you see aha yeah I, smart I, again i just really think that there is a more artful way to to help your reader arrive at that point by by integrating it into your story and again not tacking it on it's just it doesn't flow well it feels uh amateur you know Mm -hmm. so there are some good ideas here but kind of the way that they are presented and strapped together doesn't do it for me I, yeah, that's overall the the same feeling I have about this, where there's like some kernels of some really wild and cool shit here, but the fairly amateur presentation of it, at least in this translation, again, let's be clear about yeah, that, yeah. at least in this translation, is doing it no favors. But I can't imagine that the translator chose to dump all the exposition in the same spot when it wasn't there in the original work. Yeah, I mean, I hope that this isn't a... Ca- Whoa. Oh. Uh-oh. The, the phonons of the universe are moving my microphone around my desk. Um, <laughs> sorry. And, yeah, I was going to say, I, I would hope that this translator isn't taking such license that, that that's happening where he's like, I don't know, this is better at the end. Like, that would suck. I can't, I can't imagine the author would be like, yeah, cut and print. Thanks for massacring my work. Um, but mm. uh, who knows? Yeah, I, I think I agree with Chris that it's um, we offer this critique with, uh, you know, a bit of trepidation because it is a translated work from a language that is so very different from our own. Um, but, you know, we're reviewing what was given to us and this was a patron request, so we had to do it, um, you know, or, mm-hmm. or be vibrated um, to death or <laughs> something or have, I don't know, be stuck in a whale ship that's getting fucked I don't, I don't know maybe maybe you know all what? of it sounds real bad i think so. <laughs> i think um i think what might be good is if we just read some random passages sure we'll just, let's close it out this way um chris do you have any I've favorites a couple okay okay yeah one of my favorites was in the first story um where it is describing a sort of an outside scene let's say and it says no matter where she went, it was spiders, 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 jellyfish, spiders, and jellyfish, which has a very Monty Python spam, spam, eggs, spam, ham, and spam feel to it that I could appreciate very much. Yeah. Really setting the scene with exactly how many jellyfish and spiders there are out there. <laughs> and, and there was another line about, like, uh, in the same story of the first one. Just thinking about working for that long, i.e. 300 million years to build a jellyfish neural network, made her want to throw up. So this is at the point where uh, Mika has become, uh, you know, beyond even just the gun truck thing. She is just like a floating mass of like jellyfish arms and organs and whatnot. Like, lady, your whole existence is throwing up. It's it's like the biological equivalent of someone vomiting constantly. I don't understand where you could even vomit from or what you're vomiting at this point. I'm sure she could vomit some kind much. of horrifying acid and you know. Um <laughs> Yeah. Alright, one of one of my I'm gonna I'm gonna read this part. So uh, just to set the scene before I begin the passage, this is the third story in Dark Seiyu where Akane and Sachi, the the partners there, are inside of the um, 
space whale that they are using as a ship. It, it is called the Moby Dick. My hometown haunting me still. <laughs> there was a sound of wind and an impact. The Moby Dick had landed. Akane and Sachi donned spacesuits and tried to go outside, but this proved impossible. Stimulating the rectum should have opened the anal hatch immediately, but the changes to the physical construction meant it no longer worked like it had when they boarded. As they stimulated the rectum in any way they could think of, the entire ship began shaking violently. They hurried back to the studio and checked their surroundings. Fortunately, the external cameras were still functional. The spectacle on screen made a cunning whistle. The Moby Dick was mating. The partner space whale's long copulatory organ was inserted into the Moby Dick's body, its many legs scurrying, attempting to keep it mounted. The pliant pseudopods gained purchase, secreting viscous fluids and sliding up and down. The other space whales were all mating, too. This appeared to be the space whale's breeding grounds. The violent motion continued for an hour before stopping abruptly. It lay so still it seemed almost dead, making it hard to believe it had been so full of life a moment before. The view through the cameras was no longer available. Some white, fibrous material had completely covered them. It seemed like the Moby Dick had wrapped itself in some sort of cocoon. The interior flesh began changing color, too. It was getting softer, like it was rotting rapidly. The ether transceiver indicated it had caught vi a video transmission. They opened a connection and the dark Seiyu's face came on screen. Despite the turbulence, in this area the ether flow was subdued enough that transmissions were possible. Akane Yomakura, it's been a while. You again, I'll kill you this time! Six months had done little to ease Akane's rage. If anything, it had distilled it down to murder in its purest form. The dark Seiyu ignored this entirely. Are you hearing the voice? she asked. Yeah, been getting stronger and stronger the last six months. Still makes no damn sense, though. So fucking what? If that's the case, try to understand it well enough to survive. The dark Seiyu sounded oddly disappointed. What's that supposed to mean? But Akane's question was cut off by Sachi's scream. She turned around to see small shadows pouring out of the flesh walls. They were creatures about the size of puppies. They had six spider-like legs, and their bodies were split into three sections. A heart-shaped piece at the bottom, and a pair of sharp scissors sticking out of their mouths. No eyes, but the hair covering the front of them seemed to be feelers. The hundreds of spiders pouring out of the walls seemed to be extremely hungry. They were devouring the flesh walls they'd emerged from, and their appetites were soon directed at the two seiyu. Shit! Akane fired heat rays, setting the spiders on fire. They burned easily enough, but there were too many of them. She burned them and burned them, and more just kept spilling out. They did not seem to have been equipped with any instinctual fear. All they had was a desire to consume flesh. They were extremely efficient flesh-devouring machines. Senpai, we're surrounded! Black wriggling things covered the walls in all directions. Akane stomped on a spider as it tried to take a bite out of her leg. Using her full Seiyu karate training, she covered her body in blue plasma, firing it at the spiders. Eleven spots on her body where the laryngeal sacs were implanted all writhed painfully. Her strength faded as if she'd wrung herself out. Anyway, that's like... I was gonna say, you went like extra long on that. More lengthy than I thought you would go, but a fine slice of of what we're dealing with here. Honestly, that was like, that, uh, to me, that was the best story that had some of the best like, you know, scenes and stuff, so I did actually, I yeah. actually did not mean to read another spider scene, but here we are, more space spiders, <laughs> yeah. you know, just can't, can't shake them. Uh, you know, my selections are more, you know, a couple lines in nature, like the one that I shared with you immediately as soon as I read it. By pointing her anus at the sky, she could turn herself into a giant cannon. 
this is in the second story. Uh, at this point, she is uh, the that's Yuko changing her body to have anus propulsion powers or cannon firing powers. And I mean, technically, can't we all do that somewhat, Paris? <laughs> I mean, there's not much. Like, I don't know how much distance you could get, but yeah. Yeah. I could certainly fire it like a cannon, I think. Yeah, but again, you wouldn't really get any distance. And I don't know how much damage you could really do in terms of, like, blunt force, you know? Well, in this instance, I'm assuming that, you know, you're there is something that you are propelling. I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell if she's pointing at the ground or at the sky to, like, fire a projectile out of the Aedas. I believe that was in just motility, so I think you're right. Yeah. Um... I I don't really have any more passages because we could you know dig into this for quite a bit. Do you have any others you'd like to submit? Oh, just some examples of how the writing was kind of flat. Um, <clears throat> one night, her exhausted parents were channel surfing, and the CRT screen flipped from the president to a businessman to a chef, a doctor, a dog, a brass band, a car, and then finally an idol. The moment the idol appeared, Mika Furutsuki stopped crying. Her eyes opened wide staring at the face of the idol dancing on the TV screen. Her facial muscles were stimulated, forming a smile. A carefree, cherubic smile. That same innocent smile. It was the very archetype of a baby's smile. I don't... I just think that that whole weird thing, like, her facial muscles were stimulated to form a... It's just, like, overwrought in the in the weird way. I, I don't know. I think it's supposed to be funny. I don't think that's supposed to be funny, Chris. I think it's supposed to be funny. I disagree <laughs> I think I'm not sure uh, I don't know and uh, the uh the onomatopoeia in this is like hilarious but it feels sort of unintentional um there's the scene in the first story where uh Maori is cutting open Mika's skull after she commits suicide to get at her brain and this is the sound of the electric saw Cutting through bone. I mean, honestly, Paris, welcome to Japanese onomatopoeia. Oh, and then there's this amazing one. It is very different from other languages onomatopoeia. Oh, dude, there's an amazing one towards the end. Um, hang on. I gotta, I gotta do it because I couldn't even figure out. I was like, how the fuck do I even say this? Here it is. What was this for? Um, oh, it's supposed to be, like, some mantra to focus the Seiyu's power in the last story. She's actually saying this out loud. Radaridaroto, taradaridoro, zodazazadoze, zedozazozaza, dazozado, dazozoda. I fucking can't. Like, Maybe that's some kind of vocal warm-up thing. Oh. Oh man, yeah, because that does read like sort of gibberish Japanese syllables. Ugh, it just it just was one of those things that maybe works uh, if it were like a TV show, but not on the not on the printed page. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Chris, uh, can we fix this? Uh, you know, part of it doesn't like <laughs> if it was wasn't so fan fiction voiced. I think you'd have something kind of neat here, uh, like. It definitely needs fixing in that element. But aside from that, the base ideas and the plot lines even, I don't think you need to shift much. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there a lot needs to be done here, but 
you know, it's kind of, it feels kind of drafty in construction. Like, again, not in the sense of technical errors. It only had a handful and, and you know, they weren't even, they weren't even egregious. It's more in terms of kind of how the story is woven together. As of right now, as of right now, it's, it's plotting. It's hard to get invested in the characters. I can't always tell if something is supposed to be funny or not, which isn't great. Like, you should be able to, to catch that something's supposed to be funny or not. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that these stories really could work in a, in a bizarro anime kind of way. Like I said, I even think in the right hands that these could make really cool kind of dystopian sci-fi TV show episodes, you know, or miniseries, uh, TV show episodes, probably. Um, but yeah, as it stands now, some interesting ideas, some ideas I don't love, you know, like I said, um, that all the main characters are just kind of sociopathic serial killers without remorse and they have no depth. That's, that's kind of not very fun for me. I think that the characters need to be more fleshed out. Ha ha. Um, and I think that the scientific elements of the story need to be woven in in a more convincing way rather than tacked on. Um, I also think that the kind of grand reveal of what the story is about also should not just be stapled onto the end. It should be worked into the story in a more um, refined way. All that being said, I think all of Japan disagrees with us because uh, these stories have won like four awards. Yes. <laughs> Apparently. There's even a passage, like an article in the back describing how, like, even a lot of the judges and people at the, like, the award ceremonies were like, how the fuck did this win? It is insane. So I think, like, the sentiment was, like, kind of equivalent over there where it's like, this is some nutty shit. And, like, enough people put it down because it was so wild and out there that it ended up pulling ahead or something because it seems like it might have been a vote system. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it was a situation it was, like, where people were just, like, Ah, uh, this isn't gonna win, and then they voted for him. Uh, we, we've all been there, Americans. We've been there. Um, mm -hmm. recently, and I, I do think you might be right about that. Where, <laughs> you know, it was one of those like, oh, haha, this will be funny, and then so many people voted for it, it actually won. But I mean, it seemed to happen. I think on four different occasions or something. Um, let me, let me something like that. See if that's correct. Um, all right, this author has won. The 20, okay, the fourth Hayakawa Science Fiction Contest Special Prize, the 48th Seiyun Award for Japanese Short Story, the 27th Dark Seiyun Award Guest Division, and the 16th Sense of Gender Award, uh, the Future Idol Award. So the weird thing is that the only one I could independently confirm was the, the Seiyun Award for short story, Japanese Short Story. The other three, I had a way harder time, like, nailing down and finding, you know, a, an independent publication that was like, hey, this guy won this. So, I don't know. Maybe they're just, like, not big on publishing that. I don't know how big or small those other awards are, but the Seon one sounds, yeah, sounds pretty uh, prestigious. So, yeah, someone, he they wrote this as, this is their debut, and they won this award, which is, like, a huge like upset essentially yeah um yeah so i don't know i mean neither of us are japanese so maybe there's some stuff we're missing here but it seems like you know there's a market for this maybe maybe in the original japanese 
it is more eloquently crafted, I we can never know. It is unknowable, much like yeah. much like the yeah. protagonists of our of our stories yes. here. I, w- I would like to close out the episode before we go into our thanking our patrons with this selected passage. Um, <laughs> All right, take us take us home to the to the fucking spider jellyfish space. What is fiction? A search of another universe where fictional things actually exist. What is science? A search of another universe where scientific models actually exist. What is logic? A search of another universe where an ideal society based on logical principles actually exists. What is religion? A search of another universe where mystic beings actually exist. Unlike humans, computers have no souls. When they see red, they only interpret it as a set of wavelengths that exist in the real world. Computers have no way of escaping reality. Why? Because computers do not have genes that have absorbed and made use of extra dimensions within their internal environments. The process of human evolution has allowed us to acquire these genes. 138... 130,800,000,000,000 years ago... The giant soul that existed at the moment the universe was born was squeezed into the third dimension as the expansion of the universe and creation of matter caused it to lose energy. A few souls entered a supercooled state, surviving, if scattered to the corners of the universe. Humans used the particle-sized door to the eleventh dimension to evolve a consciousness. By absorbing scattered extra dimensions into themselves, they learned how to use an extra organ in their brains called the soul. There you have it. We've explained everything, Paris. So let's thank the patrons. Vote Jellyfish Jellyfish Spider 2024. Jellyfish Spider 2024! (laughs) No, Truck Gun Monster. Truck Gun 2024! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. Well, all right. um, Thank you, Anonymous Patron, for this truly interesting dive. Um, You certainly recommended something that neither of us could have found on our own that's yeah. for sure this, this is, this is, is a some, quality tbc pick oh yeah this is some premium weird uh terrible book club stuff so thank you thank you for being a patron other patrons should try to reach this level of recommendation yeah can you can you evolve can you transcend <laughs> to this level of patron uh so yeah thank you anonymous we super appreciate you uh thanks so much thank you also to the rest of our patrons Dari, Greg, Veronica, Will, D, Jared, Lynn, Sinya, Yakub, Bobby Blackcat, Lycoris, Elliot, Kieran, Martin, Jay, Scott, Luchek, CTAP1, Miri, Yanka, David, Julius, Anya, Patricia, Tommy Wiseau, haha, and our newest patron, Donnie! Welcome aboard, Donnie. Um, I know you became a patron like a month and a half ago, but we were on vacation for a month and pre-recorded mm-hmm. a bunch of shit. This is so, how we came back. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we evolved over over the period that was August. Um, I now have a laryngeal sac. Chris has some gills, you know. Uh, but anyway, th- uh, welcome, Donnie. Sorry that it kind of took- sucks because I'm in the air. <laughs> <laughs> you have air gills. That's actually a thing in this in this book. Um, anyway, welcome, yeah. Donnie. Thank you so much for joining our patron ranks. Um, and thank you to the rest of you for making this show possible. Um, if you also want to help support the show, dear listeners, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can watch our watch. You can, I guess, 
listen to our shows on YouTube. There's really no visual there. Uh, you can leave a comment, like a video. Otherwise, you can donate to our Patreon to access videos, mystery, science theater, 3000 style commentary on weird stuff, outtakes, and other like random audiovisual crap we put on there. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Goodreads if you're on those platforms. Most importantly, though, we'd really love if you shared the show on social media and told at least one person to listen to it. Uh, please keep those reviews coming. Uh, I'm actually now just remembering there is a review, a recent review that I should read. But <laughs> let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Let's uh, let's read this new one. All right. This this review is a five star review from Emmy. Uh, one of my new favorites. I found TBC completely on accident while browsing YouTube and came across a video where they were mentioned. I listened to one of their more recent episodes to dip my toes in and was hooked. New podcasts are usually difficult for me to get into, as oftentimes the hosts don't click with me and aren't fun to listen to, but I immediately took a liking to TBC's host. I've lost track of how many times I'd be listening to an episode and think, well, what about X? Only for Chris or Paris to bring it up a couple minutes later. This itches just the right part of my brain that wants to see bad books get trashed while also engaging with it and having discussions as to why something in a book doesn't work. As weird as it sounds, it motivates me to do better in my own writing. TLDR, thank you, TBC, for keeping me smiling during my long drives to and from work, and keep it up. Oh. Thank you, Emmy. Emmy, that might, that, your review might be, like, the reason I will keep doing this show. <laughs> like, yes. this review, and there are a few others, uh, too, that are just so kind and, and just kind of get at exactly why we enjoy doing the show. You know, it's fun to have this space for Chris and I to have our friendship, and it's also really fun to talk about books and kind of just, you know, be ourselves, be casual while being analytical. And um, it's great to hear that we're kind of inspiring you to rethink your writing and, and, and want to do better. So thank you so much, Emmy. I uh, really hope you enjoy this episode and all the others that follow. And I uh, hope you dig into that that long back catalog we have. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if you want to reach out to us directly, you can send us a message on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, or Patreon. Uh, or you can just send an old-fashioned email to terriblebookclub at gmail.com. Uh, for now, I think that's it. I think uh, the next two episodes are also patrons' choice episodes. So... Uh, it's going to be a fun time through the fall. Fun fall. Fun fall. Mm-hmm. Get ready for it. All right. And with that, I'm pointing my anus at the sky and blasting <laughs> off again. <laughs> ah! Bye. Truck on 2024.